On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. We've travelled around the Holy Land quite a lot. We're in Jerusalem now. We're at the Western Wall. I'm sure, Mike, you'll explain exactly where we are in a second, but we're going to be talking about his kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God. Um, just explain where we are, actually. We're in the plaza in front of what's known as the Western Wall, sometimes popularly called the Wailing Wall, and it's all that remains of the, not the temple itself, but the huge rampart structures that King Herod the Great built to support the huge temple platform on which he built the temple. And here seems a particularly good place to talk about Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God, because that wall and what used to lay behind it, the temple and the Old Testament religion, um, had so much to say about God's kingdom, but Jesus gives it a wholly new twist. And what can you see around you? Because there's going to be, I'm sure, some noise and uh, activity. Yeah, there certainly is. I mean, as we uh, sit looking at the wall at the moment with its huge stones, uh, even bigger, by the way, down in the foundations, you can go and visit those. Some of them are the size of double-deck buses, and you think, how on earth did they get those here? Um, so huge stones, and already as we look over to the wall, we can see people praying. Now... Um, the wall is divided into two sections, a section for the men to pray and a smaller section for the women to pray. And we can see people standing in front of the wall with either scriptures or holy books that they're reading prayers from. And one of the common things you'll see, particularly among very devout religious Jews, is they will often stand there and they seem to be swaying, nodding. And what they're doing there is every time they mention the name of the Lord, they bow. So you'll often see them almost relentlessly nodding backwards and forwards. We can see people there in ordinary clothes. The men have to wear a little kippah, one of those little skull caps to go in, because just to the left of the wall, there's an entrance uh, to a synagogue. So this area really is, is like a synagogue area behind a, a partition. We're allowed to go into uh, and see it as long as we're respectful. Uh, but there you'll see people in ordinary clothes, you'll see people in one very common thing is black suits with a big, broad-rimmed black hat. Uh, another division of Judaism, you'll see the men wearing really what looks like almost like white leggings, a very long black coat. And what we see is almost a, a fur hat, this huge fur hat of differing sizes on their heads. A lot of the men the very devout again with their hair at the side in curls, a lot of the men with beards. So you're seeing here actually a whole range of Judaism today. You're seeing Jews who are sort of fairly secular Jews but keep festivals like happens to be happening from this time that we are here right through to the most devout of Jews and that expressed in how they pray, what they're doing here, what they're wearing. So a very sacred place for Jews today. Oh, absolutely. This is the most holy spot in Jerusalem and for Judaism because it's the nearest you can get to where the temple was. Now, what is up at beyond this wall? It's really not very long at all, maybe, you know, 100 yards or something like that at most. And up above it is what would have been the, the temple plaza. 
those great courtyards where Jesus often used to teach and they're right in the center, the temple. It's now the home to the Al-Aqsa mosques and the Dome of the Rock. Uh, and that is a very sacred place for Islam. And of course, that's where tensions often come in this area. We certainly wouldn't be allowed to go up there on the Temple Plaza where the temple would have stood to record. And you're not even allowed to go up there and mention the word temple or some of the guards up there will quickly shush you and tell you not temple, not temple, mosque. But Jesus would have been in this vicinity. Oh, absolutely. He would have been around here a lot. In fact, mainly where he would have been would have been up on top of that wall where the great plaza is those two huge courtyards where rabbis often did their teaching so where we are is very very close indeed to where jesus would have done much of his teaching when he was here in the city of jerusalem and as you said he taught a lot about the kingdom but what did he mean by the hmm. kingdom yeah do you know the kingdom was probably the heart of his message in fact when we look at the Gospels right at the beginning, Matthew chapter 4, for example, uh, after Jesus is baptized, after his temptations, he returns to Galilee and begins to preach there. And what does he preach? Well, Matthew 4, 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. In at Mark chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Now, what is the good news? Well, you know, we Christians are quick to jump in. Oh, the good news is that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price of our sins. I believe that with all my heart. But Jesus doesn't say that is the good news here. The good news is the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near repent and believe the good news. So the good news is the good news that God's kingdom, God's rule, which is really what God's kingdom means, God's rule has arrived. The trouble is in English language, we think of kingdom as a place, like the United Kingdom is a classic example. But when we read that term in the Bible, when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he's not talking about a place. It's not a place yet, one day it will be. But for the moment really is, the, the Greek word basileia really means the rule of God, the reign of God. And in teaching that, Jesus was teaching something that was utterly in line with the Old Testament. The Old Testament believed that God was king. Psalms like Psalm 24 and Psalm 47 declare that boldly. They believed that that king ruled over everything. They believed that that king's rule brought order and peace into the world. They believed that one day God would send his messianic king on earth who would be the means of him bringing about his kingdom in all its fullness here on earth. But for Jews it was a very future thing. It was something that would come when Messiah came. It, it would be focused here on the temple that would have stood just behind us. But what Jesus does is he comes and reinterprets that thinking. So he affirms everything of the Old Testament, that the kingdom of God is all about God's rule. And when God's rule comes, everything changes. But he says this strange thing, rather than the kingdom of God is coming one day and they'd have all nodded and said, yeah, 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 we know that. No, he, he uses various words at various points in the gospels. He says, 
The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is among you. The Greek can even mean the kingdom of God is within your grasp. It's as close as that. Why? Because it's actually about another dimension that's breaking into this dimension. So he'll take the old truths and he's going to give it a twist because he's saying it's not something you're waiting for. It's something that is starting right now. Why? Because I, the king of the kingdom, am here. So why do we pray thy kingdom come? Well, <laughs> that was in the Lord's Prayer, wasn't it? And Jesus himself taught that. Mm -hmm. Well, you see, here's the thing about Jesus' teaching, and we see it actually in lots of his parables. Jesus taught that the kingdom had sort of two aspects, two focal points, we might always say. A present aspect that's here, now, but a future aspect that is still to come. But for Jews, those were two very different things. If you could imagine a timeline, they saw the world in which we live now, they called that this present evil age, and then draw a line across that, bang, Messiah would come and introduce the age to come. But you see, Jesus said, no, it's not like that. It's more like, you know when sometimes you look at cliff faces and you see layers of rock have sort of slipped over one another and you can look and you actually see where one layer of rock now sits over the other it was clearly part of it but due to earth movement it slipped and one layer slipped over the other overlap sort of exactly and and jesus is saying that's what the kingdom of god is like his future kingdom has whoops slipped into our present life now it's overlapping with it and we now live sort of in the between bit life in the between so we are starting to experience the kingdom now why because the king is here but we won't know the kingdom in all its fullness until king jesus returns again one day so we live life in that interval life in the in the box of those two overlapping lines as it were which explains why Sometimes in the New Testament and in the church today, we see powerful things happen and miracles happen. And it also explains why sometimes things go wrong and people persecute us. Because we're in that in-between time of the kingdom being here and yet the kingdom not being here in all its fullness. But it started, Jesus saying, it's here because I'm here and life is different, life changes when you start to put yourself under my rule. Can you give us an example of the way Jesus put it from the New Testament? Well, he taught lots of parables about it, and that's in some ways perhaps the easiest place to see it. If we turn to uh, Matthew chapter 13, there are a whole collection of parables, uh, most of which focus on the sort of the, the kingdom now but some of which veer into the kingdom to come and uh, he puts a whole number of parables together here there's that well-known parable of the sower and he says you see the kingdom is like seed that's sown the farmer goes out and sows it he's he's rich he's liberal and he's sowing he sows his message everywhere but whether that seed will grow or not now depends on how the hearts receive it. He'll talk about the parable of the weeds, where 
good seed is sown and it starts to grow up, but there are weeds there among it as well. And the workers say, should we go and pull up the weeds, master? And the master in that parable says, no, because if you do, you might end up damaging the good grain as well. So leave it until the end when the harvest will come and it will be divided then. He talks about the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast. I like these because you see the mustard seed, what is it? It's the tiniest of seeds and it's planted and grows, yet from that tiniest of seeds will grow a huge bush, Jesus says. That's what the kingdom's like. It starts small, it starts obscure, but I tell you, its destiny is to become a huge bush that the birds of the air, often used in Judaism as a, a symbol for the nations, will come and rest in. He said it's like yeast. What do you do with yeast? I mean, yeast can be so tiny. But, you know, anyone who's ever made bread will know that you put the tiniest amount of yeast into the dough and you leave it just overnight. Wow, and overnight that yeast has expanded and doubled and trebled the dough. Jesus says, my kingdom's like that. It starts so tiny, so small, so imperceptibly. People might dismiss it. People might think, yeah, what can a small thing like that do? But I tell you, there's power within that kingdom to eventually not only grow but take over everything so for Jesus this kingdom it started small it started in insignificant ways it started humanly speaking in a manger in Bethlehem but this kingdom it's it's all growing it will never stop it's all pervading like the yeast you just can't stop its influence and it's going to be all victorious because in all those parables, the wheat triumphs over the weeds, the yeast triumphs over the dough. So Jesus has this vision of the kingdom that starts small and in insignificant ways, but it's here, the yeast is in the dough and you just can't stop it from growing. How important is the kingdom? Oh, Jesus said his kingdom is the most important thing of all. Matthew 6, 33, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Not seek first the gospel. Now, please, I believe in the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has come and has come to die on a cross to pay the price of our sins. But it also must include the fact that this Jesus is king and his kingdom is right now breaking in and he calls us to bow our knee to him as king and to serve him. So the kingdom really has to be our priority. Seek first that kingdom. Not only is it to be our priority, it's to be our passion. One of the parables he talks is about the pearl of great price. And he said, you see, it's a bit like there was once a merchant who spent his whole life searching for pearls and one day he found a pearl like nothing else he had ever found. And this merchant was so convinced that this one pearl was better than anything else he'd ever had that he sold everything he had and sold it in order to buy this one pearl. That's what my kingdom is like, he's saying. That's what it's like. Sell whatever you need to. Make it the absolute priority, but get hold of God's kingdom, whatever the price, whatever the cost. He has another one 
the, the parable of the field and the treasure, where he said, the kingdom of God is like, it's like a man who sees a field and discovers that it's got treasure in it. And he thinks, hello, I'm going to go and buy that field. And he buys that field. Why? Does he want the field? Nah. What he wants is just one thing, the treasure inside it. But he makes that sacrifice of buying the whole field to get that one thing. So the kingdom, Jesus says, this rule of God, accepting the rule of God in our life and going out with that message has to be our priority, our passion, our pursuit, whatever the cost and whatever the sacrifice. You say whatever the cost. What is the cost of the kingdom? Yeah, we can go back to that verse that Jesus just said, seek first his kingdom, seek first his kingdom. And he's, he's teaching that in the context of people being worried about food and clothing and all the sort of everyday stuff that we are. And, you know, we these days are often worried about how we're going to cope with rising bills and, and things like this. So Jesus understands and he's not poo-pooing that we need things like that, but he's saying, do you know what? Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. Put seeking what God wants first. Put God's rule first. And you know what? If you do, whatever the cost ends up being, God will make sure things turn out okay. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. I mean, it all sounds very nice, but come on, let's be practical for a second. You've got to live. You've got to survive. Seek ye first the kingdom. I mean, what does that mean day to day? Well, I think it means that in every situation of life, every circumstance, we're going to Jesus and saying, King Jesus. And you know, sometimes it's good to put that word in front. Most Christians are very comfortable with talking about Lord Jesus, but you know, even their Lord is it's almost a bit like his name. And we lose that edge of Lord, Master, Ruler. So every so often putting King Jesus in front of it, King Jesus, how do you want me to live today? What do you want me to do today? How do you want me to use my time? How do you want me to use my money? What do you want me to do in my workplace? And you may not get an answer dropping out of heaven at that point. But as you pray that prayer, you can go out trusting the Holy Spirit to give you those little nudges that we've talked about before that let you know this is what you need to be doing. So it's about God's rule coming first. Honestly, my testimony after the many decades that I've been a Christian is that when you seek to put God's rule first in your life, God's way first in your life, you are never shortchanged in everything. Now, I can guarantee there's risk first. You see, if I can use an illustration, it, it's a bit like tithing. If you're going to tithe, you're giving one-tenth of your income away and all you're left with is nine-tenths. That's a risk because nine-tenths now has to stretch to the same amount of things that ten-tenths would have paid for. But I was taught to tithe from almost day one of becoming a Christian at the age of 18, and that's many years ago. And I just thought it's, it's what everybody does as a Christian. And I can testify to when you do that, when you seek God's kingdom first there in your finances and give him that tenth, my testimony is again and again and again that nine-tenths that is left always goes far further than the ten-tenths that I had in the first place. It's what I call God's impossible mathematics, and I love it. And that is a picture, 
just in one particular area of life, of how seeking first God's kingdom works. You know, this world is God's world. He made it, he designed it, he knows how it works best. And therefore seeking first his kingdom, putting first what he wants in our life, will always lead to things working out best. When Jesus talked about kingdom, did people get it? No, not really. Uh, and his disciples didn't get it till later. You see, for a lot of them, they were still thinking about this place where we are. Remember, just behind that wall that we're seated in front of lay the temple. And for them, the kingdom was still really about Messiah coming and one day clearing out the enemy from the land, the occupiers of the land, and establishing God's kingdom here on earth. And it would all center around this place, the temple. Why? Well, because the temple was God's home here on earth. And so for a long time, it's like Jesus is trying to change their perspective, change their thinking. And you read parts of the gospel and you think one day, they've got it. And then the next story and you think, oh no, they haven't got it after all. But little by little, the penny drops. It's interesting, you know, as you read Acts chapter one, that account of Jesus's final days with his disciples before he returns to his father in heaven. One of the questions they ask him before he leaves is, Lord, are you at this time gonna restore this kingdom to Israel? And what they're thinking about is still this, a physical place. Are you at this time, are you gonna be that Messiah that we've always thought you were gonna be and get rid of these jolly heathen in this land and set up the kingdom of God here on earth that will focus around this temple? <laughs> and Jesus just says to them, it's not for you to know the time or dates the Father's set by his own authority. That's nothing to do with you. He completely really sidesteps their question. Why? Because even Jesus himself didn't know the date of his return, he tells us repeatedly. So did they get it? Yes and no. But even there by the end, they still haven't fully got it. They're still thinking in traditional Jewish terms about the kingdom. And it will only be after the Holy Spirit comes that they really start to say, ah, I see, it wasn't about a place. One day it will be about a place. One day God's kingdom will fill the whole of the renewed earth. But at the moment, it's not about a place. It's about a person. And it's about letting the rule of that person shape every aspect of our life. But why did Jesus use parables and stories to explain the kingdom? Why wasn't he more direct? Well, I think two reasons, and we actually look at parables in another episode, and I'd encourage listeners to hear that, where we explore that a bit more fully. It was because it both revealed and concealed. For those with open hearts, who were really wanting to know what he was saying, the parables revealed so much of what the kingdom was about, what it meant to live under his kingdom, how the kingdom was going to keep growing and advancing, how nothing could stop it, and yet how at times it would be opposed, which of course it was. But equally, for those without faith and those who thought they knew it already, his parables concealed the truth. They thought, yeah stupid stories. So his parables of the kingdom conceal and reveal. It depended on the heart of faith that heard them. 
Back to today for a second, you hear Christians talk about King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you think those who use those words understand what that phrase means, King of Kings? I think it becomes uh, very often one of those catchphrases we use for Jesus. And if you think about it, King of Kings, what it means, you see, we, for us these days, a king has no power. Even in those nations that still have a king, really they are simply honorary positions, constitutional monarchies like in the United Kingdom. But of course, in Jesus' days, a king had not only real power, but absolute and ultimate power. So when we are talking about Jesus as king, we are acknowledging Jesus, as far as I'm concerned, you have ultimate, absolute authority in my life. Let's put that a different way. Jesus, you always have the last word where my life is concerned. And when we call him king of kings, it's underlining that there were many kings in the world at that time, but Jesus, Jesus alone is the king of kings, the king who even kings have to bow down to. There is no greater king. Lord, likewise, ruler, master. And the trouble is those words have not got the same cutting edge today that they had in New Testament times because they all call upon us not just to bow down, but to be obedient and to do whatever he says. And so often today, we want to take Jesus's words from the Gospels and soften them, shape them, make them more palatable for ourselves and for our culture. And every time we take the words of Jesus and try to make them a bit more palatable for our culture or for ourselves, we are denying that he is king. We're really saying, I think we know better Jesus. And actually, I think I do quite a good job at being king. And we've really denied him then by our actions. And I think you said earlier in our conversation, there's a difference between rule and realm. Yeah. You see, the Greek word basileia really meant rule or the act of ruling. At the moment, God reigns. We believe that as Christians. We believe that Christ reigns. He's seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places. We believe that wherever we acknowledge that reign, things change. But at this moment, that reign isn't acknowledged everywhere. But one day it will be. Either willingly or unwillingly, people will have to bow their knee to Jesus. Either saying, Jesus, yes, we knew it, and here we are to rejoice in it, or they'll have to bow their knee and say we were wrong as they hear Jesus say those terrible words, depart from me, I never knew you. But one day when Christ returns at the end of the age, that rain that is gonna be growing and growing and growing, Jesus said in those parables in Matthew 13, one day that rain will become a realm, a place. It will fill the whole earth. How does the Bible end? It ends not with the saints left there in heaven. You know, heaven really is a glorious waiting room where our loved ones are safe with Jesus until his return. But the book of Revelation ends with Jesus coming from heaven, coming with those who have died and coming here to earth and transforming this earth 
into something similar to this, yet gloriously more than this. And the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, John sees, and coming down to earth and transforming it. And at that point, God's reign will truly be a realm, a place, and it will be a glorious place to be and to share eternity with him in. Where would you say we can see evidence for the kingdom today? Ha! Huh. Think of the kingdom in terms of God's reign changing things. Every time someone who's rejected Christ turns in faith to him, there's the kingdom. Every time someone who's been marginalized and on the edge of society is brought in and become part of God's people, there's the kingdom. Every time we pray for the sick, and see them miraculously healed. And it's wonderful to see that. There is evidence of the kingdom. Every time someone puts their hand in their pocket and gives generously of their money to those who don't have, there's evidence of the kingdom. David, I could go on and on and on, but there's so much evidence of the kingdom. But you know, the kingdom's not a magic thing that happens out there. It starts in here. Remember how we started, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is near, at hand, it's close. And it's something we have to take hold of, something we have to say yes to. And as we say yes to Jesus being king and then live life in the light of that and do whatever he tells us, well, the reign of God starts to be seen and people start to see, oh, I see. That's what it looks like when you let God into your life and start to reign over you. Well, at this sacred place for Jews where prayers are being said behind us, pray for us now, Mike. Lord Jesus, in this special place, we bear to pray, may your kingdom come. And may that kingdom, that rule, start in my life, my family, my home. May it spread to my street and my workplace, my place of education. May it spread to my town and my region and my nation. May it spread across the nations of this earth as you empower people by your Holy Spirit to say yes to you being king and to us living in the light of that. Lord Jesus, we ask for your help in this, in your name, amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.